1: All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan on us. Mintmobile slash switch.
2: Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
0: The gist is sponsored by the Great Courses, engaging video and audio lectures taught by top professors courses like Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior. Get 80% off the original price for a limited time when you visit thegreatcourses.com gist. The following podcast contains explicit language.
2: It's Monday, November 3rd, 2014. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and I'm in Chicago. Normally I'm a New Yorker, I'm in Chicago for 2 days. Their ways are so strange to me here. Midwestern, polite, maybe? Even I think that's what that might be. Transport is conducted over the roads, not under. And the roads themselves, normally they have such easy to understand names. I-94 or what Los Angelinos would call the 94. Here it's the Dan Ryan. And the 90 is the Kennedy Expressway, 55, Stevenson, 290 is the Eisenhower. It screws with your math, right? It's not just the roads. All right, here's an equation. Dan Ryan minus Kennedy plus Stevenson, all right, minus 51 is 10. And Eisenhower is on the 10-cent piece, but Eisenhower is 290. Like I said, it screws with the math. Today in the spiel, Nick Willenda's precarious walk, eyewitness me was there. And Maria Konnikova is here to tell you not what to eat, but when to eat. Still, avoid bacon. But first, a day until election day and a visit from our polling expert. Tomorrow the polls are open for real, so now the polls are closed, meaning the public opinion polls. But that doesn't mean we can't get a gauge on where these races stand. So joining me now is Harry Enten, his senior writer for the website five thirty-eight. He looks at all the polls, crunches some numbers, and is nice enough to talk to us about it. Hello, Harry. Hello. So, okay, it's quite likely Republicans will win the Senate there are just too many close races that have to break the Democrats way. We get that. But from what I've been seeing and hearing, it does also seem that the latest polls are further bad news for the Democrat. Is that the case in many uh, races?
1: Yeah. You know, what we have seen over the weekend, you know, these polls sort of come in bunches and you see a few bad polls for Democrats and a few bad polls for Republicans. But over the weekend, most of the polling indicated that Democrats were falling further behind so that our percentage of Republican control is now up to 74% for most of the campaign at 538. We've been projecting somewhere between a 53% chance and about a 65% chance for Republican control. And now we're at 74% chance.
2: Yeah. So 74% chance that Republicans will control the Senate with, I think, a big poll in a race that it was close, but uh, in Iowa, the Republican was winning by a bit, but there was that Des Moines Register poll that showed her up by 7%. Is that just too big a lead for you to put much stock in the poll, or might that say that uh, Jody Ertz is pulling away?
1: Let's put it this way. That Des Moines Register poll is conducted by Ann Selzer, and people who doubt Ann Selzer are very, very silly to do so. She has conducted many polls in that state and has done an excellent job. That said, that poll doesn't really look like much of the other data that we see there. However, most of the data we see there does indicate that Republican Joni Ernst has a lead over Democrat Bruce Braley. In fact, most of the polls, even if they indicate that Ernst is up only a point or two, it's most of the polls. So at this point, even if she isn't pulling away, I'm going to bet that Ann Selzer is not off by more than seven points in that state. I it would be very difficult for me to believe.
2: Right, right, right. So even if she's off by six points, guess what? Jody Ernst still wins. That's right. A win is a win is a win. Right. Okay. let's talk about Georgia. Michelle Nunn. uh, We talked about her last time, ran a great race. But the latest polls show that she is trailing David Perdue. However, this might not be settled on Election Day. What can you tell me about Georgia?
1: Right. So the basic rule in Georgia is, like many southern states, you have to get at least 50% of the vote plus one vote in order to win in the quote-unquote general election. If David Perdue doesn't get that, then you have a runoff in early January when the Congress, the new Congress is already sitting. So if you look at the latest polls, they have had some movement towards Perdue, and he's getting closer to that 50% plus one mark it's very close to call. the key in that race will be the libertarian candidate, Amanda Swafford. As long as Purdue beats none by a wider margin than Swafford's percentage of the vote, he avoids runoff. So right now, Swafford's polling around three percent on the average, so Purdue needs to win probably by about three percent give or take a little bit.
2: So Georgia might not be settled on election day. Louisiana probably won't be. Alaska, that closes at midnight. That's a close one. Let's look to a race in the east that might give you an indication of how the night is going. New Hampshire, Gene Shaheen has a little bit of a lead from the polls that I've seen. So if Scott Brown wins in New Hampshire, can we say this really looks like it's going to be a Republican night?
1: If Scott Brown wins in New Hampshire, you can kiss adios, amigos, goodbye to that Democratic majority in the Senate. We have Shaheen as about an 82% favorite, I believe, at last check. She has been leading throughout this campaign. Her favorable ratings are significantly higher than Brown's. The only thing really keeping Scott Brown in the race up there is that President Obama is so unpopular. There has been some suggestion that the polls had tied in there, but we still have Shaheen as the favorite. If Brown wins... Oh, it is going to be a very, very long night for Democrats.
2: Karl Rove is citing that 6% of voters in New Hampshire are undecided, 13% of voters in North Carolina are undecided. In a midterm, Karl Rove argues he knows elections, undecideds break for the party out of power in most contests. Is that true?
1: Eh, I'm not sure I would necessarily trust Mr. Rove on that one. I'm sure he's a nice gentleman, but the <laughs> research that I have seen... <laughs> indicates that undecideds, you know, tend to break either A, evenly towards the two parties, or B, they tend to break in the directions of the fundamentals in those states. So, you know, if you're in a blue state, then they tend to break towards the Democratic candidate. If you're in a red state, they tend to break towards the Republican candidate. And New Hampshire especially is not very much of the either. It's more of a purple state, so I'd expect undecideds to break fairly evenly. In North Carolina, there may be a better chance that those undecided voters break towards um, Republican Tom Tillis. And that might be part of the reason why, in fact, it is part of the reason why uh, we have Tillis's chance of winning slightly higher than Brown's chance, because the fundamentals in that race in North Carolina are a little bit more favorable to Tillis than they are to Brown up in New Hampshire.
2: Let me ask you this. I was listening to, I think it was Charlie Cook on Meet the Press, and he said that we find, even in these close races, that it's usually the case that When they break, they all break in one direction. And I get that, although I like baseball. And we also said that the last nine times a home team was in a Game 7 in the World Series, the home team won. Well, guess what? This year, the Giants won. And I don't bring this up to say, oh, sometimes things go against the trend. I bring this up because elections happen so infrequently. To say that most years something happens, we're really talking about a pretty small sample size. So that said, um, will you expect very close races to all break in one way or another? Is that a good way of looking at it?
1: You know, I'm reminded of that YouTube clip where they put baseball players together and their statistics in limited sample size, and they sing in like an opera type of a thing, small sample size. And that's exactly what we're dealing with here. Small sample size, small sample sample size, small sample size. I mean, look, in 2006, for instance, I'll give you an example, where supposedly all the close races broke for the Democrats. In all of those states, Virginia... Um, Montana, and Missouri, in all of those, the Democratic candidate actually had a lead in the average of polls. That was what was really happening, was yeah, all the races broke towards the Democrats, but they were leading in all the polls, versus in Tennessee, where they were trailing in 2006, Republicans held on. What I would be looking at here in this situation is the polling averages or the polling forecast that we produce at 538, and chances are those races are going to break. To the candidates that we have favored. Now, obviously, there are going to be a few cases, or potentially there are a few cases where that won't occur. And I think that probably, you know, a state like North Carolina, where the fundamentals favor Tillis over Hagen would be a chance for that kind of break towards, you know, the Republican Party, who's already scheduled or expected to have a majority heading into the next Congress.
2: Harry Enton, senior writer, 538.com. Thanks so much. Thank you. So as I said, I'm staying here in Chicago, and the hotel I'm staying at has this great library with all these books and a manual typewriter. My kids have never seen one. And the books on the shelves, you just want to pick them off and read them one by one. Biographies of Taft biographies of millard fillmore and franklin pierce and all manner of knowledge but are you going to i mean you're in a different city this is not what you're going to do with your time maybe if you could stick this information in your ear listen to it on the plane to and from maybe when you're walking downtown that would be reasonable you can do it because i'm talking about the great courses the great courses are top professors engaging you with video and audio lectures The one I'm talking about today is Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior by Duke Professor Mark Leary. He looks through evolution and culture and delves into the complexities of who we are, why we do what we do, who would pick a Millard Fillmore book off the shelf instead of going to downtown Chicago. DVD, CD, Streaming. It's all available from the great courses. And just listeners have a special offer. Get Understanding the Mysteries of Human Behavior at 80% off the original price. But this 80% savings is available for only a limited time. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash gist. That's thegreatcourses.com slash gist. Here, I'll do one more carriage return. See? Real typewriter. Sometimes knowing what to eat and when to eat is like memorizing rhymes that keep sailors afloat, you know? Carbs after nightfall will be your weight loss downfall. Or is it veggies at dusk, eat the corn, not the husk? Anyway, you've probably heard all the advice against ingesting any calories after a certain time, like near bedtime or just when it's dark outside. Is this real? Or is this bullshit? And just like saying Beetlejuice three times, the invocation of the word bullshit brings to the studio none other than Maria Konnikova. That is the crowning achievement of your career as a writer who covers science for The New Yorker and other places,
0: isn't it, Maria? Absolutely. That's not (laughs) bullshit. (laughs) Ha.
2: When you say bullshit, you think of Maria. I'm sorry. I'm sorry (laughs) of those associations. All right. So you'll always hear this oh, you're going to have a spaghetti dinner at nine o'clock? And then someone will say, they do it in Italy. And then someone else will say, small portions, and then you go down a whole road. But anyway, there is this idea. Express. I've heard it expressed to me over and over. Don't eat after, I don't know, seven o'clock at night. Is
0: there anything to this? There is. Mm-hmm. And we've only recently started finding out that there is more to this than meets the eye. Ah. And it has to do with a few different things. It's regular meal times so if you normally eat at say five o'clock and you suddenly eat at nine that's not good and we can talk about that it has to do with when you go to sleep mm-hmm. um so there's no magic hour because if you're going to bed at one o'clock and then when you're waking up those two things really matter okay so it's not a time of day yeah, it's more it's, in relation to you're going
2: to sleep yeah
0: but what we do now know is that we don't just have one circadian clock, which is the clock that regulates our sleep-wake cycles. Every organ in our body basically has its own circadian clock, including all of the organs that regulate our appetite and that our seems food intake. This is extremely
2: inconvenient. Yeah, so we
0: have, we have all of these circadian clocks in our body, and all of them are kind of activated and doing different things. And those clocks depend on, they can be activated by nutrients in different times, and they also affect our health. So whether or not they're in sync, how they're activated, when they're activated, when we sleep, when we wake, all of that really matters. That's one of the reasons why, for instance, shift workers often have cancer and get very sick because their circadian clocks are all off because they're not actually tied to the light-dark cycle. Uh-huh. But now we know that that really affects food as well. So when you eat something, is going to affect your body differently.
2: Is it metabolism? Is it true that your metabolism slows down when you're sleeping? It's
0: not necessarily that your metabolism slows down. It's that all of those circadian clocks yeah. are going to be working differently. You're releasing all sorts of other chemicals into the blood that have nothing to do with digestion as such. Mm-hmm. Um, but. but the food is processed differently. So, for instance, there's this one study that was done earlier this year that followed people for 12 weeks, and they had them all eat the exact same number of calories. So, all the people in the study ate, I don't remember what it is, let's say 2,000 calories a day. Um, USDA guidelines. Yes, USDA (laughs) guidelines.
2: Otherwise known as most average appetizers at the Olive Garden.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I think it was actually less. And all that varied is when they ate these calories. So to some, they loaded the calories in the first part of the day, and for others, and they ate throughout the day, Mm -hmm. but the majority was the first part of the day, and for others, the majority was in the second half of the day. Mm -hmm. At the end of the 12 weeks, those who had eaten those calories earlier had lost much more weight than those who'd eaten them later. And this was kind of the first controlled study that really looked at, we're going to feed you the exact same thing. We're just going to vary when you're eating it. And so that was pretty good evidence that, at least for weight gain, those types of things can matter. I don't think people really understand the exact mechanism yet, but we're only now learning that it does matter. Then there's another thing that matters. Also this year, all of this work is coming out now because people have gotten really into circadian clocks. And we've only recently found out that every single organ has a circadian clock, and that's kind of cool. Um, There's another study this year um, that looked at how food is processed and how the nutrients kind of are absorbed and affected into your body. Once again, depending on when you eat, what they found was that the crucial thing is how long your body has been starved. And the longest period you're ever starved is when you're sleeping. Mm. And that's the period that really matters. So I'm guessing if you ate dinner at midnight, Mm -hmm. but then you didn't set an alarm clock and you woke up at 11, noon, Mm -hmm. 1 (laughs) p.m., see how how sleep-deprived you are, and then had breakfast, then for you it wouldn't matter that you actually ate that late. What matters is if your starvation period is shortened because then your body gets a little bit messed up.
2: So, Maria, if we were to consult you as a dietitian beyond your other (laughs) skills and you were to give us not a what you should eat but a when you should eat, What are the optimal times? What would you say? When should I eat, Maria? Well, it depends, Mike. What time do you wake up? Seven. Some days, most days.
0: Okay, so let's say you eat breakfast at seven thirty. Okay. That's going to be your break fast when you're ending that starvation period of the night. How
2: that word (laughs) work?
0: Then we're going to have you eat lunch at noon uh-huh. since you wake up pretty early. Uh-huh. So eat lunch sometime between noon and we're not going to be sticklers between noon and 1230 okay. somewhere. That's so, a not stickler. All right. Okay. Between noon and one. Thank give you. yourself an hour window. All right. And then we'll have you eat dinner. What time do you go to sleep?
2: Uh, Eleven. OK,
0: so 30. we'll have we'll have you eat dinner um, between six and seven.
2: OK, so right now I'm doing one of those things. I don't eat breakfast. I eat lunch around 12 and I eat dinner never, never as early as you say. <laughs> I always eat it after either eight or sometimes nine.
0: But you know what? We can even, we could That's even. That's why it's called the eight,
2: Maria. That's when you are <laughs> to have eaten. Don't you know anything? I know ne- about I... etymology.
0: No, I, I don't. I don't. I'll no. need to I'll need to bone up on that for another segment. Mm-hmm. But you know what? You could even do 7 to 8 if you really do go to bed at 11.30 and you always eat between 7 and 8.
2: Oh, okay. So if I always have a consistent time.
0: Yeah, okay. and, and you're not waking up until 7.30. It's not like you're waking up at 5.
2: There's a lot of folk wisdom mm-hmm. involved in don't eat late at night. And I think a lot of it is... You know, if generally, anything that gets you to eat less, especially these days and how many calories people take in, like, that that's not bad advice. Hey, yeah. should I eat this spaghetti now that it's nine? No, don't eat the spaghetti that it's nine. But you know what's just as true, if not more true? Just don't eat the spaghetti.
0: Yeah, it's like mogwais are not allowed to eat after midnight. That's
2: right, exactly. <sighs>
0: but yeah, I think a lot of this folk wisdom works because almost every single diet works. That's the beauty of diets, because as soon as you start... Watching what you eat and being mindful of it and kind of noting it and having certain restrictions in place, you almost always eat less than if you're just mindlessly eating and saying, Oh, I think I'll want this. I think it... so. Any rule is a good rule when it comes to weight loss.
2: All right, so let's render our verdict try not to eat food late at night. You'd be better off, in terms of weight loss, eating earlier in the day. Is that bullshit?
0: No, that's not bullshit.
2: It's not bullshit. Maria Konnikova plays Is That Bullshit With Us, also knows the entire oeuvre of Joe Dante, the director of Gremlins. Thank you, Maria.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Mike.
2: And now the spiel. About last night, a.k.a. Aerial Adversity in Chicago. Sunday night, just past dusk, tens of thousands of people were gathered along the Chicago River, looking up. A man, Nick Walenda, evoking his family's history, hearkening back to the daredevils of yore, would walk between two buildings on a wire, and then as if to say, I can't believe you actually thought that was impressive, he would walk between another two buildings on a wire while blindfolded. The Guinness Book of World Records says that's two new world records. That there is a Guinness Book of World Records entry on blindfolded tightrope walking 600 feet in the air is a little irresponsible of Guinness, no? It's like the record for throwing the most plugged-in clock radios in a full bathtub while you're submerged. I mean, if homeowners have to put fencing up around a pool because the law calls this an attractive nuisance, maybe blind tightrope walking needs to go into a special, very much password-protected part of Guinness. But why is it that we, that we were there in the crowd, 600 feet below, to see a record? Records come and go. Was it to see a man be brave? Brave men abound. We valorize them when it serves us. In war, we use the word brave. But when it's not our war, we might look at these men with dispassion and use words like young or foolish or ill-advised or employing poor reasoning. So we were here to see a brave man, but it was more than that. David Moore of the north side of Chicago, thought so. Risking his life. <laughs> is that it? Yeah, it's entertainment, you know. But do you think the danger is part of what makes it cool? Oh, yeah. That's what it is. But you don't want anything to happen no, to no. him. No, I wouldn't want to see him happen to him, but it could, you yeah. know. And that's, that's why it. most people are out here, because of the danger? Yeah. Yeah. The excitement. And next to him, a guy named Andy said, "We weren't compelled by death; we were drawn to transcendence. It's the fact that he's doing something that's transcending what most people believe they can do. But what? Well, but without that,
1: because he's he's giving them hope. He's
2: giving them, uh, you know, a message that you can do more than you think you can do. Symbolically and literally, that is true. People get motivated by that. Yeah. You know, people are tired of mediocrity." So what about the danger aspect, though? What about the fact that it is death to life? People, no, it's life. People know there's danger in everything we do. Well, do you think if he did it with a harness, it would be less cool or less notable or fewer people would be out here? There'd be less people here. And why is that? Because it's not as challenging. People get motivated when people do things that require
1: mastery beyond what they think humans can do. It energizes
2: them. Stefano, who heard what Andy was saying, Says, don't discount the danger.
0: There is a danger aspect to it, definitely. If he had a harness or something, a net or something to catch him, it wouldn't be as good as a turnout, and it wouldn't be as notable as him achieving something like this.
2: But if he had a harness, would the hope factor change at all?
0: I think it would. Yeah, Yeah, definitely.
2: Because it seems less notable. It seems, it's. I mean, it's less brave in a way.
0: Well, because people want to have hope in something that they just jump into without, you know, you don't have. A, if you want to have a fallback plan, You can't always have that sometimes, and if they want to make something big, something happen, you don't always have a fallback plan. I think that's what the guy's showing.
2: Yeah, another phrase for fallback plan is without a net, and literally that comes from the Walendas and what they're doing. Exactly. Nick Walenda knows this. He's skilled, but he's a skilled showman. His surname, Walenda, that's his mother's maiden name. His father is Terry Troffer. Troffer guided his son, Nick Walenda, in the air while blindfolded. Terry's brother, Mike Troffer, designed the tightrope. They represent the skill part of this occasion. I believe that we were there to see skill plus bravery. Those aren't traits that are exactly at odds, but skill denotes dispassion and hard work and a lot of thought and a lot of forethought. In some ways, that's the opposite of bravery, which can be impetuous. We weren't literally drawn to the possibility of death, but knowing that that was a real thing that can happen, it heightened the accomplishment. Many adults I talked to denied this or skirted around the issue or talked of hope and history. It took 10-year-old Corbin Olson, whose family drove down from Grand Rapids, Michigan, to put it more bluntly. What's cool about it? What do you think's cool about it? That he could die. Is that it? You're more honest than all these adults. (laughs) And Maureen Peters, in town from the Netherlands, also didn't shy away from what was at stake. I think the the part of falling down
0: is also in it. That's true.
2: It's compelling. Like we don't want to look, but we can't look away. That exactly. sort of exactly,
0: exactly. That's it. It's danger, and if
2: will he make it or not? His grandfather dropped dead, so. Um was actually Nick's great-grandfather, Carl Walenda who died while performing. We know now, today, that Nick made it too. The crowd hooted and clapped. They joked nervously to each other. One boy, possibly the progeny of this reporter, began an affirmative cheer when Walenda emerged as a speck in the sky. Stay alive! Do not die! Stay alive. Do not die. After this was all over, I saw a replay on the Discovery Channel. The blather and filler and the pre-produced elements diminished the event. We saw a tape of Willenda training, and of course he stumbled, and the background music grew dire. They brought production qualities that made what was a true spectacle seem like a cheap stunt. I don't fault Willenda. The TV coverage funds his antics, and if you believe guys like Andy, it gives us hope. Maybe it's just what TV does, how it makes even the authentic seem pre-packaged. Like the costuming. On TV, Willenda's red jacket seemed just glaring. But the bright color was necessary in order to make him out from the street below. Because there he was, a dot, a human dot, set against the night sky, in between skyscrapers, a person, a life, putting his life on the line by walking the wire. (laughs) That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, the Gist producer, never puts ketchup on a hot dog. Never. Joel Meyer, managing producer of podcasts, doesn't really know the names of any of the bars he goes to. He just looks for the big old style sign and knows that'll work. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate podcasts, has driven on LSD. That's Lakeshore Drive. Sheesh. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or listen in Stitcher. We have a daily email to sign up for, slate.com slash gist email. The app Yo is a good way to know when we're ready to go. Sign up for the app and then subscribe to podcast. We'll yo-yo when we're ready or we'll send you that email I talked about. We're on facebook.com slash Just Email the gist at slate.com. Actually, it's called the second city because of the great fire, not because of any, uh, you know, jealousy is some other city, you know, some uh, some town east of Allentown out there, you know, some town south of Poughkeepsie. Yeah, bunch of jerks, bunch of jerks The people from that place over there. Thanks for listening. Sorry if that was a terrible accent.